When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Leadership development told through the lens of Star Trek. Your host, Jeff Aiken, is a 20-year veteran of the public and private sectors in management and leadership. He specializes in helping people unlock their true potential and is a huge Star Trek fan. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Do you value innovation? Do you want a work culture where people take risks and try to improve their work and the work of the entire team? Well, that's exactly what we're going to talk about as we watch the fifth episode, but also kind of the first episode of the first season of the original series, The Man Trap. The Enterprise is orbiting planet M113. There's a Federation archaeological expedition here made up of Robert and Nancy Crater. They're here for the annual medical evaluation, which is pretty routine and weird. But for the fact that Nancy Crater is that one woman in Dr. McCoy's past. Because, like, she and McCoy parted ways ten years ago. Maybe this is a little conflict of interesty? Well, Kirk McCoy and some medical dude... I'm the doctor. ...are there for the exam. Nancy shows up, and right away, things are not what you'd expect. You have an age today. McCoy sees a vibrant young woman, while Kirk sees a more aged, yet, yet still vibrant version. And the medical dude? I'm the doctor. Darnell sees a girl he's sure he left behind on Wrigley's pleasure planet. Yikes. But nobody's connecting the dots at this point. She heads out to find her husband, and Darnell nonchalantly follows along. Robert shows up. And he's every eccentric scientist trope you can imagine, right? He's frustrated, he's bothered that they're here. And he just makes his demands and tells them to leave. Get off my lawn. Also hammers home that all they need is more salt. Apparently, the planet is really hot and arid, and they need more salt to stay hydrated. As McCoy starts the exam, Robert's a little worried that they've already seen Nancy. They're interrupted suddenly by Nancy's scream. They rush out. She's standing over Darnell, who's dead, with a lot of red sucker ring things on his face. They try and tell them that he ate a plant and was poisoned from it. Robert uses this again to encourage them to pack up and get out of town, but not before bringing up that they need more salt. They say they'll be back the next day, and then they begin investigating the death of crewman Darnell. It doesn't take them long to realize they haven't gotten the whole story. About the strange mottling on his facial skin surface, there is no reference to this symptom. Hmm. Well, then this man wasn't poisoned. McCoy reviews his records, and he can't find any reason at all why Darnell had died. Spock investigates logs and records and finds that the couple was very productive a few years ago, sending regular reports and shipments of artifacts, but recently, there's been next to nothing. McCoy, also in his studies, makes a discovery. Sodium chloride. Not a trace of it. This man has no salt in his body. Kirk connects these dots. This is what the craters were asking for. So they head down to continue the investigation. 
Kirk questions Robert, but they're not sure where Nancy is. A few crewmen head out to find her, and this is where everything really starts falling apart for her. The crewmen are found dead with the same red rings on their faces. And then we see something absolutely terrifying. Nancy, standing over crewman Green, shapeshifts and assumes his form. She has been the one killing them by taking their salt and she can shapeshift. The surviving crew beam up, including fake Green. They scan the planet for Robert and Nancy so they can get them on their ship as well, but they can only find Robert. We get quite a few scenes up on the ship of the salt sucker acting strangely around people, changing forms a few times, even killing another crew person. Eventually, as they realize Robert is alone on the planet, they head down to find out what happened to Nancy. With them gone and McCoy fast asleep in his quarters, the creature takes on his form. On the planet, Spock finds Green's body. You have an intruder aboard. Could be masquerading as Crimson Green. But they still think it looks like Green. They don't know that it's been changing shape. After a standoff, Robert finally tells the whole story. You see, there used to be millions of this indigenous creature on this planet, and now this is the only one left alive. He dances around the question, so Kirk asks directly, Where's your wife? Where is she now? Dead. After that, the creature took her form. It apparently loves Robert, and he's come to love it as well. Kirk immediately informs the Enterprise that it can shapeshift, then they beam Robert up. Kirk calls a meeting of his experts, and they problem-solve. McCoy, salt-sucking McCoy, tries to make the case for a peaceful resolution. And like us, it's an intelligent animal. It's, uh, there's no need to hunt it down. They decide to use truth serum on Robert. You know, that's a thing we see a lot in Star Trek. But they're hoping with that he'll identify the creature. Spock accompanies McCoy and Robert, and he's attacked, but not killed. Apparently, Vulcans don't have the kind of salt that it needs, but... Professor Crater. Dead. After that, Kirk heads to McCoy's quarters. It's back in Nancy form, and real McCoy... The real McCoy. ...is trying to protect her. He doesn't know what all has happened. Kirk tempts Nancy with salt, leading to a melee. After some super mid-60s style fighting, Kirk is down. Nancy drops the disguise and goes to suck his salt. She's a pretty terrifying looking creature. McCoy, finally convinced that Nancy is dangerous, phasers her. It reverts back to Nancy form and begs him for mercy, but Lord, forgive me. he phasers her again and she drops to the deck, dead. The episode ends with what we will come to expect in the original series. Spock, McCoy, and Kirk on the bridge. Kirk reflects on life and extinction, and they warp away. This was the very first Star Trek ever broadcast. In this episode, you can see the seeds of the Star Trek we've fallen in love with, but it also still very much is figuring itself out, and it's got some pretty rough mid-60s cultural tropes that are... Well, to be kind, they're, they're unfortunate. But even with that, we've ended up with an episode that it's part of the zeitgeist, right? This is an episode that Trip Tucker actor Connor Trenier has called his favorite episode in all of Star Trek. Come to Quark's Quark's Fun. Come right now. Don't walk. Run! Did you just survive another meeting that should have been an email or not even have happened at all? Do you dream of efficient, meaningful meetings? Then you need Lucid Meetings. Lucid Meetings makes it easy for teams to run successful meetings every day. 
Visit lucidmeetings.com to explore free workshops, free resources, and to learn more. Lucid Meetings, because teams that meet well accomplish more and have more fun. Visit lucidmeetings.com today. I do carry a select line of unique artifacts and gemstones indigenous to this region. To be honest, on balance, this really isn't a great episode. There were significant chunks of time that went on for far too long. And some of the key plot points, they just, they just don't hold up. Or worse, they're contrary to the Star Trek philosophies that we, now in the 21st century, are more familiar with. First of all, are they seriously? Are they seriously going to have plopped just two people on a planet alone? I'm Rashawn Uxbridge, and this is my husband, Kevin. To do a multi-year archaeological dig? More so, are they going to plop them onto a planet with poisonous plants and hostile creatures living on it? Yeah, probably not. Second, I get that McCoy and Nancy were a thing, but is he seriously going to be so blinded by that that he just stares in disbelief as she tries to suck the salt out of Kirk's face? And maybe, maybe worst of all, are they just going to wipe out the last of an entire species? If it were hostile and aggressive and that was it, I could see it, but this creature can clearly communicate. For an organization that exists to seek out new life, this seems pretty off-brand to me. One of the many things Star Trek is celebrated for is its progressive portrayal and representation of underrepresented people and groups. The stories of Nichelle Nichols and George Takei's impacts are very well documented. But I'll tell you what, they sure took their time coming around on portraying women as more than just objects. How about that? Yeah, how'd you like to have her as your own personal yeoman? Yikes. But beyond that, there's a lot of really cool in this episode. I watched this on Paramount+, Plus, which has all the remastered TOS episodes, and this was so well done. The exterior of the ship, the shots of the planet from orbit, oh, they were incredible. Absolutely gorgeous. And there was some really good acting in this one as well. Whenever the salt sucker would assume someone's form, it had certain mannerisms and a... Uh, well, uh, a hunger in its eyes. All of the actors that portrayed it really nailed this well, especially the guy that played Green, Bruce Watson. He was excellent in this role. I did a little research on him because he did so well, and you could imagine my surprise when I saw he was born just a few hours' drive from my place in North Bend. It's a small town near the beautiful Oregon coast. Sadly, he died from suicide in 2009, but he had a long career with an IMDb listing that goes on for miles. One of the cool things with the acting and the writing in this one is that especially like when the salt sucker is impersonating McCoy, you as the viewer have to understand that he's not acting normally. Damn it, man, I'm a doctor, not a physicist. Now, by the time he falls asleep and the creature takes his form, we collectively, having never seen Star Trek before at this point, have known McCoy for like 30 minutes, but it's clear this isn't the guy that we met at the top of the episode. It was really well done. And you can see from this early stage in Star Trek that this series was going to be about the sci-fi trinity, right? Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. From go, they clearly have a great relationship. What's the matter? Can't you sleep? Nope. Try taking one of those red pills you gave me last week. You'll sleep. And they end this episode as so many end with the three of them on the bridge reflecting on or joking about the story of the episode. But to me, there is the one serious issue that I have that I brought up earlier. When Star Trek was ready for prime time, they had a few episodes in the can and ready to go. 
The question was which one to air first. I mean, they had to really snag people with this high concept, very expensive show. They chose this one over the Corbamite Maneuver, Charlie X, The Naked Time, Mud's Women, and Where No Man Has Gone Before. And they chose this one first because, according to the book Inside Star Trek, The Real Story, this was a straightforward story. It had a clear monster and leaned into the idea of visiting strange new worlds. The other episodes were either too high sci-fi. They were focused on humans or human-looking people as the antagonists, or, <laughs> or they dealt with selling women to lonely miners. They believed that this one was basically basic enough to appease the masses. But that, that alone isn't my problem. My problem is that this episode should not have been basic. When Professor Crater tells the story of the salt sucker, he uses the American buffalo as an example. The earth buffalo. What about it? Once there were millions of them, prairies black with them. One herd covered three whole states. When they moved, like thunder. And now they're gone. Is that what you mean? He talks about this beast that was once so numerous, the herds were unimaginably large. And now they're gone. He compares the salt suckers of planet M113 to them. A race that was so numerous we couldn't imagine it. And now there's only one left. This episode should not have been a murder mystery kind of thing. It should have been an exploration into genocide and when and if it's okay to drive a species to extinction. I mean, I mean, they even, they even almost touch on it. The creature itself says that it's peaceful when it's fed and taken care of. But instead of exploring that and trying to communicate with it, they back it into a corner. It kills Robert and shortly after... It attacks McCoy, and they have no choice but to kill it. There was a really interesting Star Trek episode in this one, but, but we just didn't get to see it. Command codes verified. What does it take to create a culture of innovation? One where people are comfortable taking risks and trying new things? The answer is probably more simple than you might think. You not only allow for mistakes and failure, but you encourage and reward them as well. I'm going to talk about Captain Kirk's approach to this and how you can create a culture of failure, a culture of innovation as well. I'm also going to share a passionate example of what it looks like to relentlessly pursue the culprit when something goes wrong. The Starfleet Leadership Academy is supported by listeners just like you. Click the link in the show notes to support the ongoing production of this podcast. I work primarily in the different flavors of corporate America and parts of corporate Europe. Lives are almost never directly on the line in what I do, but I know that they are for some of you. Acknowledging that, I'll use the example from this episode, but I want you to know that I'm going to pretty quickly bring this down to non-life-on-the-line applications. Fairly early on in the episode, they find Crewman Darnell dead, and how he died is a mystery. Nancy has told them the story that he ate a poisonous plant, but, but nothing is backing that up. Kirk is furious. He's broken up, and he is relentless. He says to Dr. McCoy, I've lost a man. I want to know what killed him. This expression causes McCoy to approach his investigation differently, and he ends up finding the lack of salt in Darnell's system. What's key here is that Kirk identified the problem, made it clear that it needed to be resolved, and made it even more clear that they would not stop until they had an answer. 
What I absolutely love about this, though, is that while Kirk's passion is pointed at McCoy, he's not blaming McCoy. He wants to know what went wrong that allowed Darnell to die on a relatively routine mission. We have these things happen in our non-life-threatening worlds, too. Except these are usually failures in the work that we do, right? Getting an order wrong in a restaurant, packing a pallet with the wrong inventory, quoting the wrong SKUs, making the wrong determination on an eligibility application, right? The list, the list of these things is endless. These are the errors, the defects that happen in our day-to-day -day work lives. You could apply the same fervor to these that Kirk does in finding out what killed Darnell. Notice again, though, what Kirk does not do, and you absolutely should not do either, is go after a person. He doesn't ask who killed him, and he doesn't blame Darnell for doing something wrong. In fact, his confidence in Darnell to not do something wrong is what really drives this investigation in the first place. Nancy, again, said he ate a poisonous plant. Now, if they take her at her word, believing an experienced crewman would actually do something like that, it's case closed, right? Give the craters their salt, head off on your next mission. But he knows that Darnell wouldn't do that. He begins with that assumption, which leads them down the path to learning that something is sucking the salt out of people. Pass the salt. So let's look at common problems in our world. I'm a sucker, personally, for tearing apart quote processes because most organizations are honestly really bad at these. And if you think I'm talking about your organization, you're probably right. But this is something that a lot of us run into. Sales team does their work with a customer. They develop a solution that everybody feels good about. They send that off to the quote team and then hope everything comes out looking good. A couple years ago, I worked with a medium-sized VAR, a value-added reseller, that had a nearly 63% error rate on their quotes. 63%! You lose! That means that this team got it correct just over a third of the time. Now, most of these errors were caught by the account rep or someone on the sales team, but it was not uncommon for the wrong quote to make it to the customer. You can imagine the negative impacts from this. Now. The simple way to, quote, solve this problem, see what I did there, was to start looking at the people doing the work, asking the question, who is messing up? But if this was a who issue, quote errors wouldn't be a totally common problem across all sales organizations. Instead, ask the question, what allowed this to happen? This question assumes that people are doing their best and that processes or training and guidelines or something outside of that person, something systemic, allows the problem to occur. Now, if we're going to talk about systems and processes, you know we're going to talk about Dr. W. Edwards Deming, called by some the father of quality. We talked about him in some detail in the 36th episode of the podcast, DS9's Things Past. But according to Dr. Deming, 94% of all problems come from faulty systems and processes. That means that it's about 6, 6% 6 of issues that are caused by people. That's it. So knowing this, does it make sense to go after the person or does it make more sense to look at the systems when things go wrong? But I tell you what, despite this knowledge, so many people, so many managers, so many organizations blame the people. It's not my fault. In a 2018 article by Doug Andrew, which I've linked in the show notes, he talks about looking to the systems 
for root causes for problems instead of blaming the people. Dr. Deming says that people can only perform as well as the system allows. So again, look to the system. The quote process that I was talking about a little earlier, the one with the 63% error rate, well, this is what we did. We looked at the systems and we found three systemic issues that once addressed resulted in significant growing and sustained improvements. We found that a pre-sales engineer wasn't normally engaged in the sales process early enough. This resulted in inconsistent, often incorrect, and unclear bills of materials being submitted to the quote team. We also found that automation tools that were available to the teams weren't being used, so the quotes were being manually data entered instead of automatically updated and routed. And finally, we found that management had not provided clear expectations around turnaround times or the quality of quotes. So we focused on these three systemic areas, and in the six months that I worked with this company, we reduced the error rate from 63% to about 42%. My time with the organization ended after that, but they were on track to reduce it even further as they continued to fine-tune their processes and take advantage of the technology within their current systems. Now notice that at no point did I say any person was doing anything wrong or poorly. I did say there weren't clear performance expectations though. Once those were provided and people were coached to that performance, they exceeded those expectations. I'll tell you what, now this doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen enough that I think it's common. People tend to exceed what you expect of them when they're supported and coached instead of blamed. Now we can blame him for everything. Now, all the work that you're gonna do, digging into your systems, looking for root causes will be for naught though, if you aren't building up the people to be high performers and risk takers in the first place. In that article, Doug Andrew points out that failure happens, but it's not the failure that matters, it's what we do with that failure. So let's look at another interaction between Kirk and McCoy that shows what to do with failure and how and even why you should be encouraging it. So we've got Kirk and McCoy in sick bay trying to determine what happened to Darnell. McCoy's discovered, because Kirk was relentless and is determining what allowed Darnell to die, that he had no salt in his body. Except the red rings on his face. You call that skin mottling? I thought it was, sir. Another error on my part. I'm not counting the bones. McCoy let his relationship with Nancy cloud his judgment and he missed data that would have showed this sooner. Again, the easy version of this is to lay into McCoy. Tell him he had better not make these kinds of mistakes again. But really, is that honestly easy in the long term? It might possibly, maybe, solve the immediate problem in the very short term. I mean, McCoy will probably be a lot more cautious and thorough on his next few patients, but it's not going to last. It won't last because he's going to be trying to avoid getting in trouble, not trying to do a good job. Does that concept, does that idea make sense to you? The motivation to do something to avoid getting in trouble versus the motivation to do something because it's good or right? I think about traffic laws when I think about this difference. So there are some people that follow the speed limit because they don't want to get a ticket. Other people follow the speed limit because they don't want to create unsafe situations. Both people are following the speed limit, but the focus is very different. The first person will be looking around for cops or cameras, possibly missing other drivers or pedestrians, while the second person will be watching and looking for those specifically, trying to drive as safely as possible. 
Now, the same applies to work. If you meet expectations because you don't want to get written up or get in trouble, you're going to stick to the established process. You're not going to ask questions. And when questioned, you're likely going to become defensive. If you meet expectations, though, because you want to do a good job and you care about the work you do, you're more likely to look for better ways to do things, innovations, and process waste elimination. As a manager, as a leader, you have a tremendous amount of influence on which side the people on your team fall on. If you demand perfection, you micromanage performance and insist that everything is done exactly the same way every single time, people will work to avoid getting into trouble. Did I do that? Contrast that with the approach Kirk takes. McCoy admits to a mistake, a personal mistake, and not necessarily one caused by the system. And Kirk is okay with it. This acceptance acknowledges McCoy's work and expertise, and it also encourages him to do a few things I know I would love for everyone on my team to do, right? Try to be better in the future and openly share when they've made a mistake. I'm going to share something with you that I hope isn't a shock. If it is a shock to you, though, I recommend going back to the very first episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy and listening all the way through to every episode. But that thing is that people aren't perfect. None of us are. And expecting perfect performance from someone all the time is no different than expecting a rock to win a race going uphill against a car. It's just not going to happen. And if you foster an environment where the expectation is perfection, you will be miserable and so will the people on your team. But even if you aren't expecting perfection, how do you handle it when people make mistakes? Do you encourage them or are they punished? I know workplaces where people work so hard to cover up their mistakes, hoping that no one knows they ever happened. And then I've seen workplaces where those mistakes are celebrated, especially when they're shared openly. Here's the thing. If mistakes are frowned on, or worse, people will be working to hide them and will perform to avoid getting in trouble. When that happens, the absolute best that you can ever expect is minimal performance. Meeting expectations and status quo are the most you can hope for. But if you build a culture that celebrates mistakes and not as mistakes, but as opportunities to improve, then the sky's the limit. When you encourage people to try new approaches, new things, and take risks, you will grow. You'll innovate. Amazing things will happen with your team. But the keys here, the keys are very simple. You need to focus on systems and not blaming people. You must allow for and acknowledge failures, celebrate the improvements and lessons learned, <laughs> and profit. Did you know that I send out a short, fairly cool newsletter every other week? In that email, I share some perspective and often additional insights into the podcast episode of the week. I don't buy, sell, or trade your info, and I respect your inbox. To see what you've been missing out on, Click the link in the show notes or visit starfleetleadership.academy and sign up for the mailing list. We can also connect online. I'm on Twitter at SFLA Podcast and now on Mastodon at SFLA Podcast at Mastodon.world. And you can follow me on most of the other social media at Jeff T. Aiken. That's Jeff T. as in Trace of Salt, A K I N. Computer, what are we going to watch next time? Working. Okay. 
Oh, this one should be fun. This will be the ninth episode of the first season of Lower Decks, Crisis Point. It's a holodeck episode, but one where Mariner creates a movie for everyone. We get a lot of homages to the various Star Trek films, and we dive deeper into Mariner and Captain Freeman's relationship. This is a fun episode, and if our previous forays into Lower Decks are any clue, it's going to be chock full of incredible leadership lessons. But until then, Ex Astra Scientia! In the 30th episode of the Starfleet Leadership Academy, Discovery, Choose Your Pain, I talked about the incredible performance review that Saru set up for himself. Now, there's a tool that enables you to do the same thing for yourself and your teams. For your free copy of this tool, visit starfleetleadership.academy and join the mailing list. You'll not only get a free copy of this incredible tool, but you'll also hear about other cool things going on with the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Visit starfleetleadership.academy today and get your free copy. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.